everyone, and welcome to another episode of Monsters and Murder. I'm Shane. And I'm Sam. And today, we are going to be talking about a nice little mysterious story that actually kind of crosses over into some missing people, but don't worry, everyone. I asked Sam for permission. <laughs> I gave it. I didn't want to... I was like, who is it? I need to know first. Yes. I didn't want to step on any toes, uh, but... This week's episode comes from yet another little video reel that I saw on Instagram, I think it was, or one of the social medias where I watched the little videos from TikTok. And it piqued my interest to do more research to see what I could find out. And it turned out I could find out a lot about this particular subject. <laughs> Good. I'm excited. I, um, like, missing persons cases are the ones that really get me. Mm -hmm. And the ones that I'm just like, what happened? Like, somebody has to know what happened. Yes, and the missing people we're going to talk about today, because there's a group of them, but there's one where really there's just more information where the rest of them, sadly, just do not have anything. And that happens a lot. Mm -hmm. There are so many cases that I want to cover, but there's just not a ton of information. And I know I couldn't probably make, which is sad, I probably couldn't even make a 15-minute episode with the amount of information that's available. Exactly. I was going to say, all I could find on some of them is about like a paragraph length, and it's yeah. the same on everything. But it is another location, but unlike the previous episode where we did Zombie Road, this one is an area that includes like one big mountain. And as I mentioned, it has missing people, a Bigfoot-like creature, a ghost town, and rumors of a man eating rock. Oh, now this is a rock that eats a man, not a man eating a rock, right? <laughs> yes, yes, okay. but don't... So I tried to Google this to find a little more information, which I eventually found. However, on the video tabs, it is just people trying to eat rocks for some stupid reason. It makes me think of that scene in The Little Rascals, which I am well aware now that movie is very problematic. Mm -hmm. As a child, I did not know that. And I think of that scene when they're at the carnival or whatever, and they have this on that's like, man eating chicken and when they go in there it's just one of the kids eating chicken <laughs> yes well unlike that this is actually a rock that supposedly eats people um, but however speaking of like people eating rocks on the flintstone sometimes like when dinosaurs would bite stuff i always wondered if it was like candy instead of really rocks like it was supposed to be <laughs> oh you know the flintstones was not something that i watched a lot really yeah oh I, oh, I love Hanna-Barbera cartoons so I much. was more of a Jetsons kind of girl. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, so today we will be discussing Glast Glastonbury Mountain, which is right smack in the middle of the Bennington Triangle. Oh, no, I do know what the Bennington Triangle is. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. So you've heard a little bit about it, right? Yes. But anything on the disappearances? Some, some, okay. But I don't. I when you mentioned it, because I did ask for specific mm -hmm. names. I don't remember any of the names. Yeah, because like there's only one that there's really a lot of information about. The rest, you know, it's going to be a couple of sentences, unfortunately, and some speculation. When I first started this research, I was going to be like, oh, I'm just going. I didn't realize that Glastonbury Mountain was like right smack dab in the middle of Bennington Triangle. So some of my research notes in the beginning are a lot about Glastonbury Mountain, but it really is kind of the site of everything weird that happens in the Bennington Triangle. So without further ado, we'll begin. Glastonbury Mountain is a mountain that sits right outside Bennington, Vermont. So today we're in Vermont, which I believe is the first time I'm talking about anything from this state. Anytime I think of Vermont, I think Israel keys, but really anything <laughs> could be linked. Well, Glastonbury Mountain is located in Bennington County, Vermont, and it is part of the Green Mountain National Forest. 
The Long Trail, which is a part of the Appalachian Trail, is a 272-mile hiking trail that runs the length of the state and passes over the summit of Glastonbury Mountain. So our story begins with a settlement known as Fayville, which was settled around sometime in the 1800s. I could not find an exact date at all. Just in the 1800s, they tried to build this little town on the mountain. Okay, so we know it didn't happen last week. So. No. Okay, good. <laughs> it consisted of one school, some homes, and eventually a sawmill. The settlement on Glastonbury Mountain based its economy on trees. So everything was evolving around trees, which kind of set this settlement up to fail. Because eventually, even though there are tons of trees on the mountain, you're going to cut them all down. Yeah. And trees just don't grow back overnight or even within weeks. No, it's not like grass. Mm -mm. It's going to take you several decades. Yes. In 1870, a logging railroad was built from Bennington that went up to Fayville. Someone had the bright idea to turn the railroad into a trolley and make the little town a summer resort, which, if you recall, in a couple of stories now, we've talked about, um, I've mentioned those before, and uh, that's just something people did around that time. Everyone thought that was going to be the great next big thing, but it really wasn't. It's great for, like, a few months or a few years, and then it eventually falls apart. Exactly. I feel like tiny little towns like that they're not able to sustain like what they actually need to mm -hmm. make it a, a big tourist attraction because yes. they want to keep it small but it's hard to keep it small when you want to bring in a lot of people <laughs> well it's funny how you mentioned like it lasts this for like maybe a couple of years they build a resort and for one summer the town functioned as a resort town so they didn't even make it a year they just lasted oh, one summer wow. in november of that same year there was a big flood that caused many of the trees surrounding the small town uh, that had been cut down. It, because of that, the flood washed away the railroad. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Which was the main tourist attraction in their little resort town. Fayville would never recover, and eventually it would become abandoned. Cellar holes are the only thing that remains of the buildings that were once on the mountain, and it is now known as a ghost town. Yeah. Have you ever been to a ghost town? I don't think I've ever been to an actual one. Me either. There's, okay, so I don't know if it's an actual ghost town, but mm -hmm. there's a little spot, I'll take pictures next time I go to my mom's, that I pass by, and every time I pass by, I'm like, I want to know what these homes actually were, because you could tell that they were from, like, the early 1900s, because uh -huh. they're just probably one or two room houses, or mm -hmm. little shacks. I'll take pictures, I just, that's what I think of whenever I think of this. I was trying to think. They're not, because I know going out that way, there used to be like a little strip that was very similarly built in the style of like old Western towns. Mm -hmm. I don't think is anything now, and it's not that, right? No, no. Okay. This is like way out in the county. Okay. <laughs> well, yes, take some pictures. We're all interested. So I put some notes in here about the long trail that's, you know, I mentioned it's a 272 mile hiking trail that runs the length of Vermont and it passes over the summit of Glastonbury Mountain. On the summit of the mountain, it has an observation tower, which pretty much maintains the summit. My, I worded my notes very weirdly, and mm -hmm. I could tell I was in one thought, and then just, I got distracted and came back and just started another one. No, half the time I'll, like, get distracted and, like, leave out several words, and then I'm like, why does this not make sense? And then I have mm -hmm. to piece it together again in my head. Exactly. And this trail also is part of the Appalachian Trail, which I know a little bit because we live down here and everything's Appalachian. Yes, it's <laughs> Appalachian, not Appalachian. <laughs> now, let's talk about the Bennington Triangle, which Glastonbury is in the center of. This would mean that it also includes some of the area towns near immediately surrounding it, especially Bennington, but also Woodford, 
Shaftesbury, and Somerset. This area was first called the Bennington Triangle by Vermont author Joseph A. Citro, who extensively researched and documented the folklore, hauntings, ghost stories, paranormal activity, and occult happenings in New England. He wrote a book about this area called Shadow Child, where he devoted chapters to the discussion of the disappearances and various items of folklore surrounding the mountain. The Bennington Triangle is mostly known for the disappearances that occurred between 1945 and 1950, but like other areas with the word triangle in it, like the Bermuda Triangle, it also is known as an area of paranormal activity where hotspots of paranormal and unexplained ha activity happen. Joseph compared it to the Bridgewater Triangle in Massachusetts, which is another paranormal hotspot, which at a glance seems to be more known for more UFO paranormal activity than anything else. And there are some creepy disappearances in the Bridgewater. Oh, are there? Yes. Okay, very, very cool. That's um, Ash and Elena live, oh. like, in the Bridgewater Triangle. Nice. So first we'll talk about what the triangle is most known for. And that's the disappearances, because between 1945 and 1955, people went missing very mysteriously. The first occurred on November 12, 1945, when 70-year-old mountain guide Mitty Rivers was leading a group of hikers, and he walked a little bit ahead of the group, and he was never seen again. Okay, now I will say, I don't know how mysterious that was since he was 70. <laughs> I mean, and I'm not trying to be, like, you know, mean uh -huh. or anything, but, like... Was he, like, an experienced guide? Or he just, was. Well, okay, I, I, I have, there's a little more to the story that I have. Um, and that's okay. But that's, I mean, that's pretty much, like, the main thing. Is he just got a little ahead of the group, and they never saw or found him again. Um, so he was on a weekend hunting trip with four other hunters up the mountain of Glastonbury Mountain. The morning of November 12th in 1945, Rivers and his son-in-law, Joe Lawson, were walking together before reaching a fork. Rivers and Lawson would separate here with Rivers telling his son-in-law that he'd only be going a short distance before he would join them at the camp for lunch. Well, as 3 p.m. had come and gone, the rest of the hunting party would begin searching for him before getting authorities. An extensive search was conducted, but the only evidence discovered was a single rifle cartridge that was found in a stream. And the speculation was that Rivers had leaned over and the cartridge had just fallen out of his pocket into the water. Okay, now as someone who was, like, into true crime, mm -hmm. was there any speculation that the other men on the trip murdered him? None that I could find. Um, you know, so the last that they saw of him, he was headed towards Long Trail Road alone on Route 9. So and they say. the woods were searched and a body was never found. Yes. The one theory that they do have about him actually being killed by someone is that he may have been, and I don't know where this theory came from or why this is the most prevalent theory in his case, but he may have been mistaken for a deer and shot and killed by another hunter, not part of the group, but apparently this hunter would act so fast that they, remained the, they would remove the body and the remains would never be found. I mean, unfortunately, that does happen. Like, mm -hmm. people get mistaken for animals all the time when they're hunting. Yes. The 74-year-old himself was an experienced outdoorsman who was very familiar with the local area. And that's all we know about it. Yeah, I mean, that cuts, like, that cuts back on the theory that he, or my possible theory that maybe he just, like, you know, fell or something. Which he still could have, and mm -hmm. they may not have found him. But anytime a group... A specific number of people going to the forest and only a few come back. I'm like, okay, what did you guys do to the other person exactly. that's missing? 
but because this happened in 1945, and we'll talk more about this in the next case particularly, because Vermont did not actually have state police at this time. Vermont's tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this next case, it happens one year later, December 1st, 1946, Paula Weldon goes missing. And this is the case that has the most information, the one that I asked you about specifically, mm-hmm. because I kept finding more and more on it that I wanted to talk a little bit about. Um, because, you know, it's a little odd, there are theories, and... And it's a big part of the Glastonbury lore, I guess. I guess. So, Paula Jean Weldon was the eldest of four daughters of the well-known industrial engineer, architect, and designer William Archibald Weldon and his wife, Jean Douglas Weldon. Paula's father was the designer of many familiar household utensils, as well as stylish cocktail shakers. Paula graduated from Stanford High School in 1945. Paula decided to attend Bennington College, located in North Bennington, which, like our local town of Wilkesboro and North Wilkesboro, are two different places, even though it's kind of in the same location. Kind of, like you just drive like two seconds and you're like, oh. Yes, you were in North Wilkesboro, but there's no southeast or west. No, there's And that's how Bennington apparently is as well. (laughs) (laughs) She lived in the campus dorm, uh, a dorm called Dewey House, which interestingly still stands today. She also worked in the dining hall, like many other college students of the time, and still, you know, many students today still work in the dining hall to either make money or help pay their tuition. Yeah. So on December 1st, 1946, Paula decided that she wanted to go walk on the Long Trail, same trail that Mitty disappeared on, and that was just a few miles from campus. She tried to get some other students to join her that day, but they were busy. So she ventured on the trail by herself. After finishing her shift at the Bennington College dining hall, Weldon returned to her room and changed into walking clothes. Her clothing was adequate for the weather on the afternoon, but not for the anticipated drop in temperature that happened at night. Oh, because it was December, right? Yes. (laughs) She did not pack a bag, she did not take extra clothing, and she did not take any extra money. So from all appearances, she did not expect to be gone for more than a few hours. She left at 2.45, dressed in a red coat, and hitchhiked to the entrance of the trail. Oh, you know what's creepy? What's that? A lot of the disappearances that happen in the Bridgewater Triangle involve someone wearing a piece of red clothing. Yes. Yeah. And we're going to see red come back up in another disappearance, too. Oh, that's super creepy. Mm -hmm. So we do know that a local contractor by the name of Lewis Knapp picked Weldon up and drove her as as far as his house was on Route 9, which was about two and a half miles from Long Trail. From there, it is speculated that she either hitchhiked or walked the rest of the way to the start of the trail in Woodford Hollow. We know this because once she started the trail, she ran into a group of people. A group of hikers were walking down the trail that she was walking up. She approached them and asked them a few questions about the long trail. One of them's name was Ernie Whitman. He claimed that he warned her about heading up into the mountain dressed so lightly and at such a late hour. Then she continued walking in a northerly direction on the road portion of the trail known as Harbor Road. There would be one more sighting of Paula that's quite interesting that was discovered a little later. When she did not return, her roommate Elizabeth Johnson thought she must have just gone to the library to study for exams. When she still had not returned the next morning, Elizabeth notified the college president. He in turn called her parents to see if she had gone home for the weekend and Weldon's mother reportedly collapsed from shock and was confined to her bed upon hearing that her daughter was missing. They did a campus search, and of course, nothing turned up there. 
I'm surprised that, like, she went straight to the president, and the president was like, I am taking action on this, because I feel like that would not have happened at my university. No, I mean, and now, like, we have more standard, like, security that deals with that, but at this time, they didn't have that. Yeah, a lot of mine, because I worked in the security office Mm -hmm. on my campus, most of ours were, like, drug-related calls, like, kids (laughs) taking, like, pretty hip. My college was, like, a lot of... uh, Rich kids went mm-hmm. to my college, and it was a lot of uh, hardcore drugs happening in the <laughs> dorm rooms. I, and this is going to sound, like, really funny, but any type of problem that we had within our dorm room, like, even if it was a maintenance problem, after a certain time, we had to call security. Yeah. I don't know why. Um, I dropped my class ring down the sink one night, and security came and got it out for me. Well, that was very <laughs> nice. So, I like the security on my campus, but I don't know, like, how kind of serious they were. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I'd run to them in a time of need. A lot of our security officers were actually just, like, grad students who were working as a security officer. Yes, we had some who I don't think took it seriously. There, And the woman who got my ring out, like, she was this wonderful elderly woman. <laughs> but she, like I said, in an emergency, I don't know what she could do. <laughs> Call the actual police. Yes. That is an actual emergency, not something just for campus security. Exactly. So Paula's father rushed from their home in Stamford, Connecticut, and he organized a search. A massive manhunt took place with hundreds of people scouring the area of the Long Trail, and a reward of $5,000 was raised. But there was no sign of Paula. Over the next couple of days, Weldon's visit to the Long Trail was discovered when one of the hikers she approached identified her from a photo in the Bennington Banner newspaper. This was, of course, again, Ernie Whitman. Weeks of searching ensued. Bennington College closed for several days, and students and faculty participated in the organized searches. Hundreds of volunteers, including family members, National Guard troops, and firefighters searched for her to no avail. Ground and air searches were concentrated on the long trail up as far as Glastonbury Mountain, which, uh, which, I don't know what I wrote in my notes. Um, Oh, I put the two words together. It says, which was 10 miles, but I was like, what was Wiston mean? <laughs> so it was 10 miles to north. Um, the trails, various branches, they searched along Route 9 from Bennington to Brattleboro. Investigators discovered that one of the last people to see Walden alive was, or I guess, you know, before she disappeared, I wrote alive, but we don't know that she died. But it was a lumberjack by the name of Fred Gadet. And he lived along Harbor Road, which, of course, is on the trail. Gadet was in the midst of an argument with his girlfriend when Weldon walked by. He stormed off in a jealous rage shortly thereafter, and depending on different statements made, he either went back to his shack and spent the evening by himself, or he drove up the travel portion of the trail, which would be the same area where Paula was heading. Well, that's suspicious a little bit. He lied to the authorities on several occasions, or I should say the authorities of the manhunt, because there weren't really authorities at the time. And he was a person of interest, both in 1946 and when the case was revisited in 1952. Reportedly, he told at least two people that he knew within 100 feet where Weldon was buried, but later claimed it was just idle talk. When no evidence was found that a crime had been committed, no body discovered, and no forensics clues were identified, this avenue of the investigation had ended. And this would be the last time that we know of that anyone saw her on the trail. That people who make 
comments like that and they'd be like, oh, it's just kidding. Like, how is that a joke? How is mm-hmm. that funny? Like, where where's the funny part in that? Because yeah. I don't get that. There's nothing funny about it. There was a brief flash of hope from a waitress in Fall Rivers, Massachusetts, who reported serving her the day after she disappeared, but unfortunately this turned out to be a false lead. A train conductor thought he saw her in South Carolina, but that too was proven false. So with lead after lead after lead, and gradually the leads grew fewer and further between, her father departed the state with some blistering words for Vermont. The state, he said, could not melt a credible search or investigation. Vermont had no state police. Some had pushed for professional state law enforcement for years, but legislators had voted it down. Sheriffs viewed the idea as a usurpation of their power, and Vermont's representatives felt that there was no need to spend that money. I mean, like, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yes, it, it's very frustrating. During the search for Paula Jean Weldon, government Ernest Gibson had requested help from neighboring states. Um, P- Paula's father had persuaded the Connecticut State Police to send detectives to Vermont to assist Gibson. Um, and the and Gibson used the disappearance to shame the legislators into creating state police. Paula's disappearance and the muddled response made it clear that there was a need for uh, that the need was real and the sheriffs weren't up to task. So in 1947, the legislator created the Vermont State Police. To this day, local superstition holds that it is bad luck to go on or hike the mountain while wearing red. There are some other theories about her disappearance that we will touch on. The first is that she was depressed, which led her to run away or commit suicide. According to some accounts, she was considering changing her major from art to botany, but she was struggling with that decision. As reported by the Morbid Library, she was feeling somewhat depressed in the days or weeks prior to her disappearance. However, they did not believe that she was severely depressed. Well, I mean... You never know. Like, yeah. the happiest people are the ones that sometimes can be the most sad. And when when they do hurt themselves, unfortunately, people... That's what people say. I never expected that to happen because mm-hmm. sometimes people yeah. are really good at hiding it. Yeah, the depression is really just people talking. Yeah. We don't know. The second theory actually comes from her parents. They uh, disagreed with the fact that... Or with the theory that she would run away or commit suicide. Instead, they suspected her boyfriend may have been involved. Paula's father, in particular, did not approve of their relationship. According to reports, the only thing linking the boyfriend to her disappearance was a report from a psychic. Then let's not go on that theory. Exactly. Unless there's, like, concrete evidence, let's not put an innocent person... I mean, obviously, investigate mm-hmm. every avenue. But let's not focus too heavily on someone just on the basis of a psychic. Yes. Although authorities never considered the boyfriend a likely suspect, her father was insistent that they continue to follow that lead. This was one of many factors that played into her father's frustration with the police. Uh, local and Locals and students were also just very frustrated with how they handled the search in general. They didn't yeah. really care about the boyfriend theory, but in general, apparently the search just was not as organized as it should have been. Yeah. I mean, and when a person goes missing, especially in like, um, I mean, obviously everywhere, but like mountains yeah. are so extensive. And mm-hmm. if that person isn't familiar with the area, that can cause some serious issues. Yes, which leads us to the next theory, and it's really logical, and it's the fact that she simply may have gotten lost. As we briefly mentioned, Paula was not dressed for anything more than an afternoon walk. She could have gone off trail, got lost, and succumbed to the elements. 
She could have misstepped, gotten injured, limiting her mobility. And because it was so cold and began snowing at Snowdown, she could have likely succumbed to hyperthermia. Yes, and I also want to ask, are there a lot of like wildlife? Obviously, bears would be hibernating at this time. Mm-hmm. But say that something did happen, like she had fallen and was buried under snow until spring when the bears came out. Like, what's to say that, uh, you know, unfortunately, they didn't find her remains and took her somewhere, which is why she was never found. Yeah, I didn't find anything about it, um, nor did I think to research that avenue about what type of wildlife is not only there, but would kind of be around during that time period. But I don't know if it's anything too much since it wasn't brought up. Yeah, maybe not. I'm not a... Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, biologist. I don't know what <laughs> what lives where. Uh, the way this theory explains the fact that her body was never found suggests that she could have sought a natural hiding spot in the woods and that's where she could have succumbed to the elements and then sadly because it's a natural kind of hiding spot her body would be even more difficult to, to find and then over time it decays and animal activity could have scattered her remains. Yeah. There are those who believe that she was murdered, most likely by Fred Gadette. As I mentioned earlier in the investigation, did uncover the fact that he had seen her, and he was anything but cooperative with anyone involved in the search. Yeah. There are also unsubstantiated reports that he bragged to others about attacking and killing her. Oh my, like, why? That's not something mm-hmm. that you do. Like, brag about, like, I don't know, a massive M&M that you find in your bag of M&Ms. Like, not murder. Mm-hmm. There is one last theory. Well, no, I got two more theories. Uh, But this one points to Paula's own father being the culprit and responsible for her disappearing. Because apparently Paula was expected to go home to Connecticut for Thanksgiving, but she called her parents and told them that she would be staying in Bennington. And apparently, according to the roommate Elizabeth, in in what she told the Bennington, Bennington Banner, goodness, every time the newspaper comes up, it's such a tongueful. So you have trouble with BBs. I have trouble with CCs. (laughs) Well, so the roommate told the newspaper that she and her father had a falling out not long before she disappeared, but then the roommate retracted her original statement that that Paula was not distraught to say that, in fact, she had been quite depressed. So, were there any indications that there were issues with Paula and her dad before she chose not to go home for Thanksgiving? Other than what the roommate says, we don't know. Okay, and then how far away could she... I mean, I know that Connecticut, every like every place in New England is not very far away mm-hmm. from each other. But how far would he have had to driven? And how would he know her exact location on the mountain? Because people saw her on the mountain. Exactly. I don't think that's a very uh, good theory. No. Um, well, apparently he also drew suspicion when he apparently vanished for 36 hours amid the search for his daughter. Again, the Bennington Banner reports that he disappeared immediately after hearing his daughter was possibly seen by the waitress in Massachusetts. However, he did not tell anyone he was leaving or where he was going. This just seems to be a theory because I could not find anything that said he was ever considered a suspect. He was not. Uh, What's th- to say he just didn't drop to Massachusetts to see? To see, the- yeah. Yeah, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but like. No, that's that's exactly my thought. He, If he did really truly leave for 36 hours, he could have went to where the lead was to see if it was actually her. Yeah, because I feel like, you know, obviously your parents are going to be able to identify identify you mm-hmm. better than anybody else. Exactly. And, of course, as I mentioned before, the search was not up to par anyway, so nothing was ever followed up about that. He could have actually been there, and someone was like, well, I didn't see him. 
You know, they're like, there's a lot of hearsay, unfortunately, in this case. Yeah. Sorry, Tom, your opinion's not the only one that matters. <laughs> exactly. And even if, you know, they had the argument about Thanksgiving, young people argue with their parents all the time, especially during this age range. Old people argue with their parents. I mean, True. it's like, it's a, it's a thing, but that doesn't mean that if you make your parents mad, they're going to kill you. Hopefully, your parents aren't going to kill you if you make them mad. Mm-hmm. And then finally, there's the Bennington Triangle Theory, which is pretty much just something supernatural happened to her where she disappeared, but no one seems to know what that is. So it's a very light theory that I don't really consider a theory. No, I think the most likely thing is that um, she was murdered by Fred Mm -hmm. or she got injured on the mountain somehow or was hiding and, and succumbed to the elements. Yeah. So we're going to move on to the next Disappearance, December 1st, 1949. Again, another December disappearance. James Tefford vanished on a return trip from St. Aldine's, but his luggage was still on the bus. So this next one seems like someone just kind of blipped out of existence, but it happened in a moving vehicle while in Bennington. Now that's unusual. Mm-hmm. And there's not too much known about James's early life before three major events that Sally now kind of define it. Those events are his time that he served in the Army, so we know that he existed because he served in the Army, his wife's disappearance, and his own disappearance. Okay, so when did his wife disappear, and how closely are they, like, is there a tie there? I don't think so, but I'm going to get into it. Let me see if I remember my notes. Okay. <laughs> um, through my research, I did find one article that believed he was born sometime during the year 1884 in Vermont. He married a woman by the name of Pearl, who was a bit younger than he was. In fact, she was 28 years younger than he was. Oh. (laughs) Yes. I don't know how old she was when they were married. We just know that age range. They were residents of the town of Franklin, Vermont. In the 1940s, he served in World War II, and during his time serving, it is said that he and Pearl communicated very well. When he returned home, things were still good, but he returned one day from his house from just being out. And Pearl was nowhere to be seen, even though she was supposed to be there. The house was completely in order, and there was even a meal that was out that she had been making. So she started the meal, but apparently never finished it. So he assumed that she just stepped out for the moment and, like, went to the store if she forgot something. The late evening came, and Pearl still had not come back home, which was very unlike her, and so he began to worry. Speaking to neighbors and locals, he found out that she had been seen that day on her way to an Emiko store in town and that everything had seemed completely normal. She was in good spirits. She wasn't exhibiting any signs of distress or any problems, but that would be the last time anyone saw her. This sent James into a deep depression. He withdrew from his social circles and became a recluse. He then moved to Bennington's soldier home. On December 1st, he took the bus to St. Aldine's uh, city along the route to the north of the state. Goodness, I don't know why I just can't read my notes. Sometimes when I'm listening to myself while editing, I'm like, why do I sound like the words are in front of me? Why can I not read? (laughs) It happens. Sometimes words are hard. They are, apparently, for me especially. Um, But So he arrived there safely. He spent some time with relatives, and then his departure was to come. This would be the last time they would ever see him. They accompanied him back to the bus stop, and he boarded the bus. His family and fellow passengers would later claim that he had not been acting any differently than um, anything out of the ordinary or any other person that was on the bus. When he did not arrive back at the retirement home as scheduled, there were efforts made to find out where he had gone. 
Both bus personnel and the 14 passengers who had been on the same bus told authorities that Tefford had gotten onto the bus, and this was confirmed by his luggage, cash, and all of his belongings being left on the bus, abandoned, as well as an open bus timetable on his seat. According to witnesses, Tefford had last been seen sleeping soundly in his seat, but there was but he was so nondescript that no one really paid much attention to him until the bus reached its destination and he simply wasn't there anymore. This means James' disappearance can be placed sometimes between the last stop before Bennington and the arrival to Bennington. The crucial question that was never solved is what happened afterwards? Because while the bus did make stops, we know he was on there for that last stop into Bennington. Okay, I have a have mm-hmm. a theory though yes but if he was just so quiet and people weren't really paying attention what's to say that their memory of seeing him sleeping did not happen prior to that last stop and he actually maybe he got off at that mm-hmm. last stop he got left or he chose to stay possibly well since he was on there at the stop before bennington there was no way for him to get off the moving bus without anyone noticing so they say because the bus did not stop between the last city where he was seen on the bus and bennington uh, to this day, it is a mystery, and it's one that many chalk up to the Bennington Triangle to the fact, due to the fact that he was the third person to go mysteriously missing. And that's all we know about his disappearance. Okay. I mean, so, initially, I was like, okay, so his wife goes missing. How long had his wife been missing before he went missing? Let's see. I don't know if I have that. It appears do, 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 that she went missing sometime in the 1940s. I don't have an exact year. And he goes missing in 1949, so maybe four to five years or okay. a couple years in between. Okay, because I was going to say if it was just like a few weeks or something, like no. maybe they, okay. <clears throat> so that kills my theory that they like planned mm-hmm. to run away. Exactly. All right, the next disappearance is a boy by the name of Paul Jepson who was only eight years old, and he disappeared by wandering off, or as some people think, maybe he was consumed by pigs. And we'll pigs talk about this. pigs don't eat anything. They will. Yeah. Paul is the youngest of the people who have gone missing. Paul's mother took him with her to drive to work. His mother worked as a caretaker for the local dump. She wasn't planning to take much time, so she gave Paul strict instructions to not leave the truck. However, when she returned to the vehicle, he was gone. One report says the task that she was doing actually took her an hour. And just like Paul to Weldon, Paul wore a bright red jacket that would be very hard to miss among the surrounding forest. Another large-scale search ensued, but nobody in the party found anything. Tracker dogs aided in the search effort to no avail. And like the others, the child vanished with, off the face of the earth, it seems, without a trace. And again, sadly, there's just not a lot, a lot of information on this case. And like, Paula, like the Paula Weldon case, which this one seems to get linked to, mainly because he was also wearing red and near the mountain, police work was probably still not as it should have been. So there's very little to go on. There is a theory that states are tracking dogs at some point, even though we've heard they didn't find anything. There is one other thing I found that says tracking dogs actually tracked him to the same road that Paula disappeared on, but it's just a theory. There's no evidence, and we don't really know where that rumor comes from. Yeah. Of course, some people blame the parents. Apparently, Paul's father told the Albany Times Union newspaper that it was the lore of the mountains that claimed Paul because he talked nothing, of nothing else for days of going on the mountain before he vanished. I mean, and that's something, too. The kid was eight years old, and mm-hmm. his mom's like, 
you do this, I'm going to be here. He, you know, he wasn't listening to her. He probably, I mean, I think it's very likely <clears throat> that he wandered up there. Yeah. Um, so then there's a theory that said that Paul tried to climb into a pig pen, most likely to play with the pigs that were near the <sighs> local dump that his mother took care of. And maybe he was consumed by them instead. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, this comes from the fact that one of her duties was to feed the pigs while she was on site at the dump. That, I mean, that's also a very likely theory. There yeah. are a lot of cases where uh, victims are fed to pigs mm-hmm. because pigs will literally eat anything. If anybody is familiar with Willie Pigton, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> pigs will eat anything. They're actually very scary. So he disappeared on October 12th, 1950. And the final disappearance um, is by a woman by the name of Frida Langer, which also happened in this five-year stretch, also in October of that year. She was camping near the reservoir when she vanished. Her remains were found in the spring of 1951. She was 53 years old when she went missing. So her story is, October 28th, 1950, she, her husband, Max, and her cousin, Herbert L. Elsner, I believe that's his name, yes, went camping on the Somerset Reservoir, which, keep in mind, this is just two weeks after little Paul Jepson went missing. The Somerset Reservoir, res, Reservoir, good grief, is in the Green Mountains, and, of course, we know the Green Mountains is also Glastonbury Mountain. So they get to the mountain, they make camp, and Frida and Herbert decide that they will take a hike. They begin their hike, and things are going well until Frida slips and falls into a stream. The History Channel says that they were a quarter mile into their hike when this happened, and honestly, I'm not sure, I don't know if you remember, but this has actually happened to me before on one of the trails of the Greenway. <laughs> I got too close to the stream on the embankment and slid and fell down in them, <laughs> and I came home with very muddy pants, and I had to take a shower. <laughs> And it was, like, it's not a deep stream. So I didn't, like, I fell in the water, but, like, it was a stream. It was, like, there was no danger of me drowning. Um, but, yep, slid down right, went right in. So I know exactly how this feels. And if I was on, if I was camping this happened, I would do what she did, turn around and go back to the camping site I'll as well. I would be so pissed. It's like, we're going home right now. This is why I don't camp. Exactly. So I can relate. Since they weren't far from camp, Frida decided she wanted to go back and change her clothes. Again, something I would have done. Herbert decided he would wait near the stream for her to return. However, she never came back. When Herbert returned to camp, he was alarmed to learn that apparently she never made it back there either. Frida's disappearance, such a short distance away, defied most explanations. Local authorities launched a series of searches. For several weeks, the woods became a source of intense scrutiny. 300 people would participate in these searches, and sadly, they would find nothing. In May of 1951, the following year, so seven months later, two hunters stumbled upon Frida's body. The body was located a little more than three miles from where she, her husband, and cousin had set up camp. The discovery of her body is even more puzzling because it was in an open field near, near the reservoir, reservoir, an area that authorities had searched on more than one occasion. Due to the state of the remains, no cause of death could be established, so we have no idea how she ended up there or how she died. Was there a lot of snow that season, and that's why they didn't find her? I don't think so. It, I heard I saw nothing about snow, other than the fact that they searched this field. She was not there before, and then seven months later, she 
is found. That's weird. One source that I found says that when her husband and cousin were questioned, they both passed polygraph tests, which, you know, we've discussed before, take it or leave it, but no official suspect was ever named. We still do not know what happened to her, but unlike the cases I previously mentioned, Frida's body was found. So those are the five main disappearances associated with the Glastonbury Mountain and the Bennington Triangle. I'm sure there are more, and I know of at least one more, that I got from the History Channel article that I used, and that is Carl Herrick. In 1943, he was enjoying a hunting trip with his cousin, Henry, 10 miles northeast of Glastonbury, the town. The two became separated and Carl never returned. Henry found Carl's body three days later in a bizarre scene. Or Carl's ribs had punctured his lungs, is what I should say, and the postpartum indicated that something had squeezed him to death. Oh, this is where Bigfoot comes in, isn't it? What's that? Is this where Bigfoot comes in? Maybe. Um, Henry reported that there were large bear prints around the corpse. However, experts say a bear would not have squeezed a man to death. We all know this. We also kind of know this from listening to another podcast about animal attacks called Tooth and Claw that we like so much. And it's so good. You should listen to them. Mm -hmm. They've made me less afraid of sharks. Yes. (laughs) So now we'll get into the more strange tales about Glastonbury Mountain and the Bennington Triangle. We'll begin where many stories often do, and that's with the beliefs of Native Americans on or near the land long before any of the disappearances happened. It is said that the Native Americans, uh, one of my sources contributes that it came from the Algonquin tribe, believed that Glastonbury Mountain was cursed with angry spirits that dwelled in the forest, and they stayed away with the only exception to bury their own dead. It is thought that they believed this because the woods were dark and isolated, some also theorize that they may have thought this because there are areas in the woods that are dead silent, devoid of the usual sounds of nature and any animal sounds or insect sounds. Oh, that's like, that's... That's I some feel, Blair Witch crap. <laughs> yeah, I feel like a lot of times, like, being out in nature, like, one of the most peaceful parts is hearing, like, the wind blow yeah. and the birds and just, like, the rustling of, like, the mm-hmm. animals that live there. So just imagine going into an area of the woods where it's just silent. Yeah, that would be very creepy. It is also alleged that there's a Native American legend that states somewhere in the woods on this mountain, there is a rock that swallows people. It is a man-eating stone, as I've mentioned. If someone happened to step on the stone, it would open up and swallow the person. Many believe today that this may have been a way of explaining the sinkholes that are strewn about the mountain. That's exactly what I was getting ready to say. It's just a big sinkhole. (laughs) Is it a sinkhole or is it an actual rock that eats people like many of the mountain's mysteries and the triangle's mysteries? There's still no definitive answer. The next mystery we're going to discuss is known as the Bennington Monster. This is the Bennington Triangle's Bigfoot. Thought to be an early Bigfoot or Sasquatch creature, the monster has been described as over six feet tall, with hair from head to its toes. The first sighting of the monster was reported in the early 19th century when it rushed a stagecoach on a washed-out road. The beast knocked the stagecoach onto its side and fled into the dark woods with a roar. Luckily, no one was harmed in the stagecoach. I'm pretty sure that squash was just on its evening jog, bumped into it, and was like, get the hell out of my way! (laughs) There's also an account from the New York Times about two hunters who encountered what they dubbed as a wild man on the mountain. While hunting, they crossed paths with a creature of about five feet resembling a man in the form, excuse me, resembling a man in form and movement, but covered with bright red hair and having a long, staggered, staggling beard with very wild eyes. 
It came from a rocky cliff, and one of the men shot, wounding it. The creature charged them, and they were far enough from the creature to get away, even though they lost their guns in the chase. Why? I mean, the Mm -hmm. first instinct is to shoot it. Why? Why is that your first instinct? (laughs) And if it was like a person, if it looked like a person, I'd be like, hey, hey there, buddy. Exactly. If I saw Bigfoot, I would say hello. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> My instinct, I mean, I wouldn't have a gun anyway, but um, I was just like, hey, I would throw a hand up, wave at him, <laughs> see what response I get. Well, these hunters never returned to those woods, and no one had ever been close enough to verify exactly what this creature is. Accounts about this creature, whatever it is, vary, and they come in spurts. So whenever one hunter says they saw it, all of a sudden, several others do. And then when that dies down, there are periods of times where no sightings happen until another random hunter spots it again. Yeah. Um, it's also worth noting that there's been no evidence of such creature ever discovered on the mountain. Now we have the Bennington monster, which is not to be confused with the Glastonbury Wild Man, oh. who lived in a cave near Somerset. Reports say that he would go into nearby Glastonbury in the Bennington Triangle to harass women. So this was an actual man. Oh, so he was just like a creep. Yes. He accomplished this by pulling open his ratty coat to reveal his nude body while waving around his pistol to scare anyone who might want to stop him. Like, dude, keep your dick covered. Nobody wants to see it. That's so, like, it's so infuriating. Like, ugh. I mean, I also kind of found it funny that it said he waved his pistol around. I'm like, I'm sure that's not all he was waving around. Yeah, when you said pistol, I'm like, that's not what I was thinking. No. That's even more disgusting. Like, not only Mm -hmm. are you going to flash me your dick that I don't want to see, you're going to threaten me with a gun. Yeah. So, he would flash these poor, unfortunate women. And then he would flee before anyone could catch him and go back to his cave on the mountain. And... Like every other story, there's no record of what actually happened to him. So apparently he existed, but we don't know what became of the Glastonbury wild man. I, who I want to call the Glastonbury flasher. Yeah, he shouldn't be called a wild man. Like, that's not wild. That's gross. Yes. So like many other places I have discussed, the Bennington Triangle and Glastonbury Mountain have been featured in a few TV shows. The Bennington Triangle was, was discussed in season three, episode eight of the television program, William Shatner's Weird or What? Weird or What? Yes. The episode was entitled Mysterious Vanishings, and it aired in 2012. The Bennington Triangle was featured on one of the, excuse me, featured as one of the haunted locations in the paranormal TV series Most Terrifying Places in America, which aired on the Travel Channel in 2018. The episode is titled Unnatural World, and it told the stories about the reportedly missing people in the five-year span and the local lore of the Bennington monster that supposedly roams the woods. I don't think they included the wild man. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a that is not something that's unnatural. That is a crime. However, he scares me more than the monster. <laughs> Can you imagine if cops had been a thing then? Oh my god. <laughs> so I came across many more, unfortunately, very short, like one sentence short speculation and other things that happened in this area. There's a rumor that there's a doorway to hell somewhere on the mountain as well as the Glastonbury Mountain cult that no one can ever seem to find evidence of his existence, but allegedly they're out there causing, you know, no good. Mayhem. Um, I feel like there are two different kinds of cult, two different kinds of cults, the ones that everyone knows about, and then there are, like, secret ones, but no one ever finds any evidence of them. Yeah, I mean, and they exist everywhere, apparently. Mm -hmm. So even though these don't have any substantial information... We cannot ignore the fact that some pretty weird things have happened in this area and probably still happen today. 
So I'll leave you and our listeners with one question. Would you ever hike the trails of Glastonbury Mountain? Shane, you know I don't hike. <laughs> I mean, and especially not that. Like, I, uh, I do enjoy being out in nature. Mm-hmm. And I've been hiking once or twice. But as far as like an actual full-on hike, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> I'll take a leisurely stroll. Yes, I would go up some ways. Like, I watched a news report real quick about a man who told stories about the disappearance. And he mentioned the man eating rock. But it was a news reporter. And then he puts on a red jacket and walks up the road like a little bit in the camera view. Um, but, no, I would, I would visit. I would want to see it. I'm I mean, very interested visit, in the triangle areas. Yeah, I would visit. I just... You don't expect me to hike. Like, no. we'll go to a nice, like, uh, like one of the little country restaurants, maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not the country. But we'll go to, like, a little restaurant. I'll go and ha- get some maple syrup. Yes. Bring that back home. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I don't, I don't want to do, like, a full hike up the mountain. I don't want to find the ghost town to see the cellar remains of Fayville. And I would be interested in seeing that. Really? Like, I would be interested. In, that is something that I do find very fascinating. Like, abandoned town. Mm-hmm. That's really neat. Well, I like that, but you'd have to hike up the mountain to get there. <laughs> Can I not just take a helicopter? I, if, I don't know if you know someone, maybe. Probably, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> but so, that's the Bennington Triangle in Glastonbury Mountain. Thank you. That was very interesting. Yay. <laughs> those were a lot of, like, I feel like a lot of those disappearances probably were just due to inexperience mm-hmm. or you know just succumbing to the elements yeah well there was also and i'll touch on this very quickly before we end um there's a theory that there was a serial killer on the mountain because a lot of people think paula weldon was most likely killed by paul cadet or whatever his name was um you know some people and then some people think if little paul jepson got out of the truck he could have been nabbed by the serial killer yes and um, and then frida of course was obviously probably killed by someone and then her body just dumped yeah yeah um yeah serial killers definitely especially like in that time where you're not getting a lot of um notice Mm -hmm. serial killer wasn't even a term until like the 70s or the 80s so they would not have even have known to look because it's such a foreign concept that a person could do that to more than one person Mm -hmm. without a and i say cause and i'm using air quotes like yeah exactly yeah, there you have it. <laughs> that was very interesting. Thank you. Of course. Do you want to tell them where they can find us? Yes. We are on Instagram at Monsters and Murder Pod. And you can reach us out, reach out to us by sending us an email at monstersandmurderpod at gmail. All right. Until next time, always stay safe. And don't go hiking. <laughs> stay indoors. <laughs> All right, everyone. Bye. Bye.